Well, normally when, uh, when I get a chance to be able to... Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. When I get a chance to be able to open the Word uh, on a Sunday morning, I like to begin with a question that I'd like you to talk with each other about. It's a very intense question. I want you to share with someone beside you one of your favorite games that you played as a kid. Can you do it? Can you think of something in your mind right now? What's a favorite game that you played as a kid? Go ahead and share that with someone beside you. Okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Obviously, we have a church family that likes to play games because uh, there was a lot of conversation about that. I even heard Dutch Blitz. Who knows Dutch Blitz? Oh, there we go. You're from the Pennsylvania area, I guess, if you know Dutch Blitz. But uh, isn't, it, isn't it nice to think about when you were younger and you played different games? You know, I'm going to reference that here in a couple minutes. But uh, in the meantime, let's get started with what we've been talking about for the past couple weeks. We've been talking about the Great Commission. And as we've been talking about it, we have been using our hand as a help for understanding the Great Commission. Basically, it's five times in the New Testament, and we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. There's something on my hand. Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And the interesting thing is that you can, you can do a couple things if you, if you memorize it like that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Acts. If you, can you do this? Can you separate your hand like this? Not like this. Not like this. That would be Vulcan. This would be, this is the, this is how we do it. We, we can separate into groups. So we see here, this grouping is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John and Mark. And this happened, the, the, uh, the Great Commission was given within the first week. Within the first week after the resurrection of Jesus. And then we have uh, Matthew, and then we have at the end here, before his ascension, we have it in, oh, I can cheat here, Luke and Acts. We have it in Luke and Acts. And there's about a 40-day span between those. So that's actually pretty interesting. Also, because we have it divided like this, we know this section was in Jerusalem, this section was in Jerusalem, but this is unique in that it was in Galilee. It was in Galilee. So something, uh, just a little aid for you as we go through the Great Commission, to knowing the five different areas that they are in Scripture. I want to ask your forgiveness because I've been struggling with a major sinus problem, so if I clear my throat a bunch, um, just have a steady non-observance and ignore it. But, uh, <clears throat> so we, are, we have already gone through Matthew, and we've gone through Luke last week with Pastor Brock. So a couple weeks ago was Pastor Lowell in Matthew, and then last week was Luke for Brock, with Brock, and then today we're going to be going to Mark 16. So you can, you can open up your Bibles to Mark 16, if you could for me, please. If we look at the different, different passages of the Great Commission, we know that Matthew is the goal. Matthew is the goal. Luke would be the message, the emphasis of the message. And today, Mark... What I'm going to be handling is the method. I'll be handling the method. So um, let's get into it. Let's get into it here. 
Um, I'm going to go ahead and just read. I'm going to start in verse 14. And then we'll go all the way to the end. It says this. Later, Jesus... I'm reading out the New International Version. Some of you might have the ESV, New King James, NESV, King James, Living Translation, whatever. But I'm reading out the New, New International Version. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Wow, that's a pretty amazing passage. That is a pretty amazing portion of scripture. Now, as I was studying it, three things really came to my mind. And if you have a King James or a New King James version, or you have, actually, that's not right. Let's jump back on that. Okay, thanks. Um, There's three things that came to my mind as I was studying the passage. Number one, Something that concerned me was, if you have the King James, New King James, New American Standard, you won't have this in your Bible. But if you have any of the other versions, look between verses 8 and 9 in Mark 16. Is there, does, there, does anyone have something separating verses 8 and 9? Raise your hand if you have something in your Bible that separates that. That got me curious. That got me curious. I'll read what my, what, what my, uh, my copy of, of God's Word says. It says, The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. Well, there's one thing. There's one thing that like kind of piqued my curiosity. What is going on here? Another one was believe and baptized. Believe and be baptized. And the third one was all those signs they was talking about in the the passage. What in the world is that all about? Well, I'm going to... Hit pretty hard the first one, and then I'm just going to reference the other two, hopefully in the course of, of the message. But I started thinking, if it says in my Bible that these earliest manuscripts don't have verses 9 to 20, what do I, what do, I do with that? What do, what do I do with that? How do I recon, reconcile that in my mind? And then as a guy, a guy normally, when a guy has an idea, it usually snowballs. and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was thinking, if, if the earliest manuscripts don't have it, does that mean there's something in my Bible that shouldn't be there? And if that means there's something in my Bible that shouldn't be there, does that mean there's other things that are in the Bible that shouldn't be there? And then I started thinking, if I went down that road far enough, I could really start to question the Bible itself. 
And all because of this, this little line, the earliest manuscripts do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. I'm going to do my best as a not an intelligent uh, textual, critical, textual criticism scholar to help you understand. Because I'll give you the end point. I want you to know that the Bible that you hold in your hand, the Bible that you hold in your hand, and I wrote it down to make sure I got it correct, is the accurate English translation of the original manuscripts written by the authors of the Bible as been given by the Holy Spirit. I want you, I want you to realize that what you hold in your hand is the accurate English translation of the original manuscripts written by the authors of the Bible. I want you to, if, if you don't remember anything from, the, from, from now, from the rest of the sermon, know this, what you hold in your hand is the accurate portrayal of God's word. Accurate, accurate, infallible, without error. The original manuscripts, we have these in our hands. Now, I ask you um, about your favorite game that you would play when you were a kid. Have you ever played, <clears throat> have you ever played the game Telephone? Where everyone gets in a line. You ever play that game? Anyone? anyone? Am I the only person I played it with my, play, you know, whispering to myself? No. Uh, and, you know, you get in a line. Let me explain the, the game to you. You get in line, and someone has a, has a sentence that they, that they say. And it might be, Mom and Dad went to the store to buy a Snickers bar. And then it would go down through the people, and then you would whisper it. You can only whisper it one time. Boom, boom, boom. And at the end, it was... An elephant and a kangaroo jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. You know, it's like it gets all morphed and worked and reworked and massaged different ways. So it kind of takes all these different, different iterations. So when it comes out at the end, it's something way different. This is not how we got our Bible. This is not how we, we have the accurate English translation of the original manuscripts in our hand. It wasn't someone said, I think it, I, this, is what, this is what Jesus said. And then someone walks along and goes, somebody said that Jesus kind of said this. And then it goes along and it says, someone said that somebody said that they were talking about Jesus and he kind of said something like this. It, that's, not, that's not how we get the written word of God that we hold in our hands. I'm going to try to explain how we got it. Okay. Now, way back when, in the New Testament, when they were writing these things down, they didn't have what we would call paper. They didn't have a pen. They had papyrus. It was written on scrolls, and you roll it all out and stuff and things of that nature. Papyrus is a plant that gets smashed down and moved around and made till it's flat so you can actually write on it. And what they would do was they would write letters on this papyrus the original authors wrote letters on this papyrus and they, got, and they sent it out. Like, for example, Paul in, to the, the church in Colossae. We have Colossians. So he wrote a letter and he, or he had a scribe write the letter because as many people think that his eyes were not, that, were not that good. So he had a scribe write the letter and then he would say, it was in my own pen, in my own hand, da, da, da. And then he'd send it off and then we'd go to the church in Colossae, the Colossian believers. They would read it. Now, 
when they read this, it wasn't just a letter that you get in the mail. We, I get a lot of mail. I get a lot of mail. And you know, eh, and you chuck, oh, chuck it, you know, chuck it and chuck it. Oh, they're just kind of nice, you know, read a little bit, then you chuck that too. They knew when they received this letter that this was from God. That this was designed by the Holy Spirit through Paul to them. You know what they started doing? They started making copies of it. Started making copies of it. We don't have the original, the original writing. We don't have it. But something's kind of neat. We have a bunch of copies. We have a bunch of manuscripts. They're called manuscripts. Now, think about it a little bit. I don't want to get jump the gun too much here. But think about it. The last person to write in the New Testament is John in the book of Revelation. And he was roughly around 90 AD. So he was pretty old. That means he was pretty young when he was a disciple. Side note to all you people that are teenagers. You know, the disciples, many of them were teenagers. Okay? So John, in his old age, pens Revelation. And then it gets sent out. So we don't have those originals. But what we do have is we have a fragment of, of one called P52 on papyrus. And it is, it is dated by Brainiacs and Planet Smartron. Take a look at the pirate, papyrus and take a look at it in the ink and all that kind of stuff. And they see it and they measure it out and all that kind of thing. And they know exactly what, what the dates were. It was between 100 and 150 AD. Pretty cool. So we have a, cop, we have a manuscript, a copy of the original. And it was fragments of the, it wasn't just John, it was, it was fragments of, of parts of John. And it's called the P52, Papyrus 52. Then this is all, this is all 100s AD. We call it the second century. Very early on, the second generation believers, the second generation followers of Jesus. Remember, they were writing these things down. And let me just tell you, they didn't write things down like we write things down. They didn't like, write it down. They were meticulous because they knew how important it was to write it down. There's evidence that some would, would go wash their hands, ceremonial lawyer, wash their hands, come back, write a word, and then go ceremonially wash their hands and come back and continue to write. That's how important, that's how precious what they were copying down was. They wanted to be meticulous. So not, that I, not to be belaboring the point, but we actually, by God's grace, have 25,000 manuscript copies of the original. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but that is an immense number. 25,000. We have about 56 to 5,800 that are written in the original Greek. We have 350 that are written in, in like Syriac or, or Aramaic, 350. We have, we have 10,000 that were written in Latin post 300 AD. If you guys don't, don't know, from 100 AD to 300 AD, if you were a Christian, it was bad news for you. I mean, you were persecuted. And then Constantine comes in in the early 300s and he, and he, he totally destroys everything and he, and he brings Rome together and he says, I decide that Christianity is going to be the official religion for Rome. 
And then everywhere that was persecuted, all these Christians, they weren't persecuted anymore. And then you have the freedom. And then this huge uptick of writing, of writing the, original, the original manuscripts in Latin, going in Latin. We also have about 9,300 that were written in multiple different languages. E- Ethiopian, Slavic, um, Chaldean. We have all these different, different, different versions, or not versions, but different manuscripts written in different languages. Now, I say it because of this. That's the New Testament. First place. It gets first place. Shining star. 25,000 copies. Well, guess what second place is? Anyone know what second place is? It's Homer's Iliad. Has anyone ever heard of Homer's Iliad? Maybe you had to read it in school or something like this, you know, this big thing. Homer's Iliad, it was written in about five, 500 B.C., and it took about, and, and the next copy that we have of that is 500 years later. And the number of copies we have of this is 643. 643. Now that is the closest that any ancient writing can get to compare to the New Testament. My point is this. And this is from A.J. Robertson, a biblical scholar. He said, the vast array of manuscripts has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text with greater than 99.9% accuracy. Okay? Let me read that again. The vast array of manuscripts, 25,000 of them, has enabled textual critics, people that go and try to tear it apart, textual critics and scholars, to accurately reconstruct the original text with greater than 99.9% accuracy. Greater than 99.9% accuracy. Now there are other um, so-called holy books that, that are nowhere near uh, analyzed and criticized and, and, and broken apart and torn apart. You know? And they have errors out the wazoo out the wazoo. You know, we have, we have the Book of Mormon. We have the Book of Mormon that was written in, b- privately by someone, but they, we, can, we can find that it actually the person took major sections of the King James Version and stuck it in there. And those sections were incorrect. You know, they, because they were tr- always, always working on fixing the translation. We have the Koran, who we have Muhammad, who said he wrote the Koran, but really he would just spout things. He had scribes coming, and they would write stuff beside him. And a lot of times he'd go into seizures and say stuff. And when he had seizures and convulsions, they would write it down. And there's, there's even disagreement among them about what, what he said and what was said. And it doesn't make sense. And even the Koran has, has things that it says it quotes from the Bible, but it's not even in the Bible. They say the, the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and Mary. They have it in the Koran. You know, they have things that are way incorrect. We have accuracy here. We have accuracy. So when I read that most reliable early manuscripts and ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9, 20, I'm still like, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? I didn't even want to, you know, it's handwritten before the printing press. Before the printing press. Well, I want to say this. That, yeah, it's true. The earliest manuscripts don't have it. But those guys that wrote those things... Those, the, the early church fathers, they make references to the longer ending of Mark in Mark, 9, Mark 16, 9 to 20. They reference in their other writings. So 
although they didn't, uh, they didn't say it was to be added, they didn't disagree with it. They didn't disagree with it. The word of God that you hold in your possession is inspired and you can trust every word written in it. I'm sorry I belabor the point, but I just want to bring it home that we do not have to doubt God's word. And when it says something, we can believe it. If it says, my, one of my favorite verses, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you can take that to the bank. You can take that. When it says that Jesus came to take away the sins of the world, you take it to the bank. Don't let Satan wiggle his way in and try to cast doubt in your mind, in your heart, about the validity and the inspiration of God's word. So let's jump into what, what, what Mark 16 says. And um, I've, got, uh, I've got some other notes here I want to share with you. You know, obviously, people have, have looked at this. And I have a paper on the side by someone really, really smart. I think this guy's named Dr. David Miller. And I've got like five or six copies of it. And it will, it will go through in, in nuances and explain to you all about textual criticism and, and the inspiration of Mark 16, 9 to 20. And if you want to read that, you can have at it. And he actually bolded a bunch of areas, which I thought was kind nice because I had to skip over those sections because some of it I didn't understand. So that was good. So you can grab, grab a copy of that if you want and learn more about Mark 16. But as far as Mark 16, 9 to 20, but as far as Mark, there's agreement that Mark did not write 9 to 20. He didn't write it. But there's also agreement that everything that's written in Mark 9 to 20 is the inspired word of God is the inspired word of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into it. And uh, really what I want to do is I want to land in Mark 14 and 15, and then we'll go to Mark 20 as well. So let me reread Mark 14 and 15 again. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Now, remember in our hand, remember in our hand, okay, John, and we have Mark here. Mark was in the first, the first seven days, really was like the eighth day when, when, we, when we're reading this about Mark. And he, he has just 11 with him. Just 11. Less than 10, 11. It was like 500, 120. This is a bunch of people. But he has just 11 people with him, just the disciples that are with him. And he says this. And I want you to know that there is power. There is power in the word go. In the word go. And I know we've looked at Matthew 28. And he says, go make disciples. And that's the imperative in Matthew 28. It's true. The imperative is go make disciples. That's what we're called to do. Make disciples. Two imperatives in Matthew 28, actually. Make disciples. It says, lo, I'm with you always. And make disciples and look to Jesus. And I believe it wholeheartedly. Make disciples and look to Jesus. That's in Matthew. That's in Matthew. But in Mark, we have the imperative, go. Go. You know, do you know how important your, your role is as a believer in Jesus Christ? I had a professor at Bible college, Dr. Dan Alban, and he had a bunch of sayings. And one of them that he would always say is, every believer is an immediate missionary. Every believer is immediately on mission. On mission. He said, it doesn't matter if you've, if you know the Bible in and out and you're, 
80 years old and you've been a, a believer for 75 years, or if you are a believer that just received Christ as their personal savior five minutes prior, you are an immediate missionary. And if we want to think about how important man is in God's plan, think of it this way. God himself came down as a man. He chose to live as a man. He chose to serve as a man. He chose to free men from their sin. He chose to train men with his life. And he chose to send men to other men. Now we can say mankind in that. It's not just the men, it's the ladies too. Mankind. We are called, he even calls the disciples to be fishers of men. Fishers of men. Man is God's method. You are God's method to get the gospel to a lost and dying world. Now, you have to understand that we can't say, I wish I lived here in that section or that time and that time of frame. I wish I lived back in the 50s. I wish I lived in the Civil War. I wish I lived in this. God has intricately designed you, perfectly designed you to be exactly where he wants you exactly where he wants you, in your imperfection. God has placed you exactly, perfectly where he wants you to go for him. And you're imperfect. And you're imperfect. You know, if we, if we think about scripture, we think about people that have many issues and problems. Ordinary men in God's word that have been used to do extraordinary things. Very few men that, they, that are in scripture that, that nothing ever bad was said about them. Jesus, um, you could say Joseph, even though Joseph was a little prideful with it when he went to his brothers, you know. Um, and you could say Daniel, because Daniel really didn't have, didn't really, really nothing negative was said about, about these, these, these three people. But other than that, other than that, everybody had issues. Everybody's got issues. Take a look at Moses, for example, in the beginning of Exodus. God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. Okay? Crazy. Miraculous. And he starts telling Moses of all the things that he wants Moses to do. And there are five excuses that Moses gives of why he shouldn't be used. He basically was trying to tell God, you don't understand, God. I'm not perfect. I've got problems. I've got issues. Me talkie no goody. Me goody no talkie right. You know, that was one of his big things is he, he wasn't a good talker, you know? Is it, you know? And he was doubting things. What do I say? I don't even know what to say. Even if I could talk, well, I don't even know what to say. You know, I don't talk too good. I'm not like, I, I put these names in. I'm not like Pastor John that can be direct with people and direct them. You know, I, if Pastor Brock's not here today. He's, he's, uh, he's sick, but uh, I don't know everything like Pastor Brock does, you know, because we never have a question. I usually go to Brock. Brock, what's the answer to it? And he'll tell me. Okay, great. Thanks. You know, I don't know. I'm not like Pastor Lowell. I'm not like Pastor. I'm not like, I'm not like all these other people in church. They're so much better than me. They're better, they're better equipped to go. They're better equipped to, to tell people about Jesus. Not me. Not me. I don't know that much. I, I'm not that good. A saying I always, I, that, I, that I have three sayings. They're a funny bird. Everybody's got issues and it's all good. 
that kind of covers a lot of things. You know, um, they're a funny bird. If someone's a little unique around you, you say, oh, they're a funny bird, you know. Um, if someone starts to gossip about someone, you know, or says something they shouldn't be saying, everybody's got issues. Know what I mean? Everybody's got, everybody's got issues. Everybody's got issues. That kind of squelches gossip, you know. And it is all good because in the end, we know that it is all good, that God will work it for his good. But everybody's got issues. You've got to understand that. Some people are better at other things than, than, uh, certain things than others. But that should not be a reason why you should not be the method and go and tell people about Jesus. Let's look at, let's look at 1 Corinthians here briefly. 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. I'll go ahead and read it for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 31. It says this. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose lowly things of the world and the the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why would he do that? Why would God choose weak things and imperfect things, why would he choose them? Well, the answer's right here. So that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what? Guess what? I'm not perfect. Ask my wife. She will, she will give you, you have to sit down. It would be a long conversation. It would be a long conversation. I am not perfect. I have got issues. I've got issues. But we cannot let our issues be the stumbling block for giving the gospel to someone and having them enter into eternity. Are we that prideful? Are we that prideful that we say, I'm not going to do this. I don't, I, sh- I don't need to do this. Someone else will take care of it. You are God's method. You are God's method. You know, you're perfectly placed in this imperfect world. This imperfect world. It doesn't take any research whatsoever to know that there is sin and brokenness in this world. This world is broken This world is broken. It is ruled by evil. And evil things happen. You know, people die. People murder other people. People murder precious babies. All under a guise of correctness. We are living in a, you know, my prayer is that in a hundred years, we'll look back over the abortion issue and we will say, what savages those people were a hundred years ago. What savages they were. You know, I don't even want, I don't, I don't even want to go down that, I don't even want to go down that road. I'll get too fired up. I will get too fired up about it. I have to let, I have to let that go. Talk to me afterwards. I'll, I'll give you some, I'll give you some ammunition that's truth about that. But we live in a world that's broken. We live in an imperfect world. But, in, but for some reason, God has said, I want you to live in this broken world. I want you to live in it. Why? To be a light for me. 
to show people my love, to give people food that are hurting and don't have food, to give little children love at, at Child Evangelism Fellowship, CEF, after school daycare. You know, we go and we give the gospel to give these little precious kids love, the love of Jesus Christ. To turn and ask the person in the cubicle beside us, how are you doing? Forget about, forget about our job for five minutes. How are you doing? You're broken. Yes, I know. This world is broken. Can I give you, can I show you the answer to brokenness? Can I show you the answer? Jesus, we live in an imperfect world. And we shouldn't close our eyes to that. We should say, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm a stranger. I've got a place set for me in heaven. And I sure do wish I could bring everybody with me. I sure do wish I could bring everybody with me so we could have that home in heaven. So we take a look at the, at the, uh, at the 11 that he's talking to. Let me go back to it. You know, the call, the call is to the 11, but it's really a call to us, you know. It's called to 11. It's 11. He's talking to them specifically, but it's really a call to us. Again, don't use that as an excuse not to be obedient to God's word, to say, oh, well, he was talking to, he was talking to this person here in this context, so I don't have to do this because he was, he was talking to Zacchaeus or Nicodemus. He was talking to the Pharisees. I don't have to really, because he's talking to them. He's talking to the disciples. He's not talking to me. He's talking to you. God's word is communicating directly to you about what your job and what your orders and what your role is. And it says here, they call the ele- later it appeared to the 11. Let's skip down here <clears throat> to verse 20. What did they do? What did the disciples do? Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. They proclaimed, they proclaimed the gospel everywhere. Now, I skipped over a little section there when it says, believe and be baptized, you'll be saved. I do want you to know that that is not, it's not a requirement for salvation that you were baptized to be saved. If you'd like to know, uh, if you'd like to have more evidence of that, then you can write these, these verses down. John 3, 16. John 3, 18. John 3, 36. John 5, 24. John 6, 53, 54. John 8, 24. Acts 16, 31. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. There is a huge list of verses that discuss salvation comes through belief and trust in Jesus Christ, not in belief and baptism. Uh, Someone explained it like this. Uh, A dog with brown spots is an animal. So a dog without brown spots is not an animal? No, even if the dog doesn't, brown spots or not, the dog is still an animal. You know, belief in baptism and you're saved. Belief without baptism, you're saved. Plenty of references to it. Plenty of instances in, in Acts, in, in, in the book of Acts, transitional period in, in the New Testament. Plenty of it, plenty of it. And, and a little bit more evidence in the passage. It says, who believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the emphasis is on belief, not baptism. And those the signs will come to those who believe. It doesn't say believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized. You don't believe and you're not baptized, you won't be It doesn't say that. The emphasis is on belief. But people get hung up on baptism like it's a requirement of salvation. Belief is the inward. Baptism is the outward expression of what you've already done inwardly. So it's not believe and baptize, but it's believe and you'll be saved. And as far as these signs, as far as these signs as referencing, that you'll be able to, 
It's a company of those who believe. My name would drive out demons, speak in new tongues, would pick up snakes in their hands, and they would drink deadly poison. And when I hurt them, and they appear, and they heal sick people, and they would get well. All those things happened with the first disciples during Acts because all those are a sign to the non-believing Jew, or really, specifically, a sign to non-believing Israel. So it happened. It happened. And it doesn't say, like, in West Virginia, we're, I know, I love West Virginia. I love West Virginia. I am a huge supporter of West Virginia. But, there, the, but it's, it's, it's legal to get snakes and have churches down in, in the South, pick up snakes and drink poison and stuff like that, and they still have that. Other states, they, it's illegal to do that. But in West Virginia, it is, I, you know. Yeah, for freedom, I guess. But, uh, but it doesn't say they sought out snakes. It doesn't say they sought out poison. It says, if, you know, it says they, they will if it happens. And there's evidence to each one of those things in Scripture. But it's not, it's not for us to have in the church service. That's, that's not the way. They will, not they seek or they should. And it's demonstrated by the disciples. What did they do? What did the disciples do? They went out, and they preached, they proclaimed everywhere. That's what they did. That's what they did. They didn't go to college first. They didn't go to Bible college. They didn't memorize, have to memorize 113 verses. They didn't, they didn't do that. Did they know the verses? Yeah. Were they learning? Were they, were they studying? Were they, yeah, yeah, they were. But did they have to do it? No. They immediately went out and proclaimed Jesus, proclaimed the gospel, where? Everywhere. We have a missional mindset here, there, and everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, and, the, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's where we proclaim it. In our job, in the car, uh, at Walmart, you know, in our neighborhood, wherever, wherever, we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So what should we do? What should we do? I said we follow their lead. I said we'd be obedient. When you came in, in the church this morning, you've probably seen this before, but there is a, there's a, a paper that, that I wrote up, and it's not really original for me. The concept is, is, is proven, and uh, we're going to watch a video over here in a second. But this is information to help you know how to give the gospel to somebody. As been referenced in the previous months, 90 to 99% of believers in Jesus Christ have never shared the gospel with someone. 90 to 99% of believers in Jesus Christ have not shared the gospel with someone. There's three different, there are three different studies that range from 90, 90 something, and then 99%. Three different separate studies. In which you go with 90. Let's go with the 90. 90% of believers have never said, this is the gospel. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. So I want us to watch this video. It takes a minute and 40 seconds. I want you to watch this video on this. I want you to take it home with you. And if you want more options, I have it on the back here, but on the side are four different other ways that you can share the gospel with somebody. Pick one. Pick one. I, it doesn't matter to me. Pick one and do it. Let's watch this video real quick. We live in this world... And it's characterized by brokenness. We don't have to look very hard to see. There are things like disease, disasters, wars. There's a lot of pain in this world. But this is not God's original design. God has a perfect design. And the way that we have gotten ourselves into brokenness is through something that the Bible calls sin. 
Sin is turning away from God's design and pursuing our own way. And that leads us to brokenness. Brokenness eventually leads us to death. And this death will separate us from God forever. But God doesn't want us to stay in brokenness. So he's made a way out. And that way is Jesus. Jesus comes and he enters into our brokenness. And the death that we deserve for pursuing brokenness, Jesus takes our place and dies on a cross. And his body is broken for us. And three days after he dies, he rose from the dead and he made a way out of brokenness. And people try many things to get out of brokenness. Things like religion, things like success or relationships, education or drugs and alcohol. But none of these things can get us out of brokenness. The only way out is Jesus. And if we turn from our sin and believe that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, we can leave brokenness and grow in a relationship with God and pursue his design. And more than that, we can go. We can be sent just like Jesus back into brokenness to help others come through him to pursue God's design. Now, there's two types of people in the world. There are people that are pursuing God's design and there's people that are still in brokenness. We have to ask ourselves, where are we? So where do you think you are? It's a great question to ask. Two types of people in this world. Those that are living according to God's perfect design or those that are living in brokenness. Which one are you? There might be someone here that has never heard that before or heard it a bunch of times and for the first time, it clicks. If you want to know more about this, about what it means to go from brokenness, putting your trust in Jesus and turning and believing in Jesus and entering back into this relationship that God has originally designed. If you have a question about that, please talk to me. I would love to sit down and talk with you about it. I would love to sit down and talk with you about it. I want to. And those of you that do believe that, the middle, the middle line there, go. We are called to go. Um, I'm, I've, got to, I've got to finish. And so in, conclusion, in conclusion, I want to share this. What's the, great com- what's the definition of the great commission? A great commission. What is the definition of commission? It's a group of people charged with an order or a function. A group of people charged with an order or function. Very fitting it's Veterans Day. Very fitting it's Veterans Day. If you were in the military and they gave you an order, you did it. You did it. You didn't ask questions. You just did it. God has given us a command, a commission, a mission. He said, you go and you proclaim my son Jesus. That's what you do. We are all, we are all under his command, the Lord of hosts, the, the, the reigner of reigners. And he's given us a, a mission. He's given us a job, an order. Are we going to do it? Are you going to do it? Here's what I'd love. I'd love for you to share the gospel with someone and email centerpointbible at gmail.com and blow up the Gmail account. And say, just say, I gave the gospel to somebody. Send a text to me. Put it on Facebook. Anything. Do it. Do it. And the last, the last point is, what will, what will God do? What will the Lord do? It says right here in the passage. And the Lord worked with them. You're not alone. You're not alone in this. The Lord will always be with you even to the end of the age. But our command, we are the method. We're called to go and to proclaim.
Let's pray. Help us, Lord. Help us to to not be prideful and put ourselves in the way of you and your plan. Help us not to come up with excuses or reasons why we shouldn't go to our neighbor and give them Jesus. God, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We've got plenty of issues. You know them full well. And you chose to use us. I pray that we would trust in you. Let us trust in you in your plan. So much so that we would be obedient to your plan. We would obey and enact the command that you've given us. That we would be on your mission and not on our own. Help us, Lord, to give the gospel to those that are lost and dying. They are lost, harassed like sheep without a shepherd without you. Help us to have the compassion that will move us to action to be able to share the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, with them. Help us, Lord. I pray all these things, your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.